I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to look together this evening, Lord willing, at verses 4 through 20 of this chapter. But so that we can see the context, we'll read the whole of the chapter. You'll recall last time, well, just to give a quick recap, we began with Habakkuk praying to the Lord concerning the sins of Israel. Have you not seen the evil of your people, Lord? And God answers and says, yes, I've seen. And just wait, I'm raising up a people to punish them. Babylon, the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty people. And he was showing Habakkuk that that he would punish the sins of his people abundantly. But Habakkuk was aghast. How could God, who is holy, who is good, how could He use such a wicked people for His ends? It was, it was beyond what He could fathom. And so He ends His prayer with the resolve that He will wait to see what God will answer. And that's where we begin. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what He will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered and said to me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself up with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a house with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him with, the, with your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be, your, be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. What profit is the image? that its maker should carve it, the molded image, the teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it, to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord 
is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Amen. Beloved of God the Father, through Christ the Son, the passage before us is quite often overlooked. That happens sometimes when there's something very powerful and prominent in a passage of the Bible. In this book, there are two prominent sections. One at the very end, the conclusion of Habakkuk's response to God. And in this chapter, one line, but a line so powerful it is quoted and alluded to multiple times in the New Testament. The just shall live by his faith. And that little line, that little part of this chapter overshadows all the rest in the minds of the commentators, in the minds of the scholars, in the minds of the theologians. The problem is, as important as that line is in and of itself, we can't really understand its fullness. We can't really recognize its importance outside of its context. That's a bit of a parable of life itself, isn't it? And I mean, each person here has tremendous insights, wonderful gifts, outstanding accomplishments. But to fully appreciate those contributions, we need to see them and evaluate them in the context of the whole person, of the whole life. When you do that, when you look at the whole picture, the insight a man speaks becomes even more powerful when you understand the struggle he has endured to get that insight. The gift that he exercises seems all the more generous because of what it cost him to develop that gift. The accomplishment becomes all the more impressive when you realize the effort required to attain it. We need the full context to understand every aspect. Here, we saw the broader context. I just reminded you how Habakkuk brought his complaint about Israel. God responded. Habakkuk responded with a second complaint. How can God, who is holy, who is good, who is righteous, how can He use such a wicked nation as Babylon, as the Chaldeans, with all of their sin? And this is God's answer. It's an answer that sheds much light for us As we continue to live in a world that is filled with unjust and ungodly people. Whom the sovereign God ordains to use. How are we to make sense of that? How are we to respond when we see the evil God permits here, now, today? How are we to make sense of a world that is filled with those who sin, with those who are filled with pride, who are driven by their own self-centeredness, knowing that God uses even them. How do we deal with that? Here's his answer. And we need to consider how God answers his prophet's complaint. Because he answers that complaint with the promise that there is justice to come. He's not overlooking it. He's not failing to take into account the reality of the people he's using but there will be justice. And ultimately, will all, it will all bring glory to God and good for His people. God answers His prophet's complaint with the promise of coming judgment. And it's an answer that begins with God acknowledging 
The insatiable pride of wicked Babylon. And that's our first point in the first couple of verses. Verses 4 and 5. In Habakkuk 1 verse 13, the prophet asked, Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? He's talking about Babylon. And God's promised that He would use that wicked nation to punish Israel. Now in verse 4, God begins His answer. And look how quickly God gets right to the heart of who Babylon is. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in Him. The proud. The Hebrew term there literally means puffed up. His soul is puffed up. In other words, He has an inflated sense of Himself. He thinks much of Himself in comparison with all of those around Him. We would later see clear examples of that in the leaders of Babylon. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel Daniel 4, declaring how he had built Babylon by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. How self-centered, how full of himself. Or his later successor, Belshazzar, feasting with the vessels of gold and silver taken from the temple of the true God, while praising gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron. It's understandable then that God would say that the soul of Babylon was not upright. The leaders of this kingdom refused to acknowledge the true God. All that they did aimed at serving, exalting, praising themselves. It was wicked in the eyes of God. A corruption of what man was made to be and to do. Now do you know what that shows us right from the start? It shows us that God sees. He sees the truth about Babylon. He knows very well what the Chaldeans are like. In fact, He knows them better than they know themselves. He understands their mind, their motivation, their very heart. Our God knows the difference between evil Babylon and the faithful few like Habakkuk. And that's why He then makes the observation that The just shall live by his faith. Babylon and their ilk, they're driven by pride, but not Habakkuk, not Isaiah or Jeremiah, not the saints. These folks are filled not with pride, but with humility. They're not self-seeking, but God-seeking. The just, that is, those who are righteous in the sight of God, they please God because they have faith. What's that mean? Children. When we say they have faith, that means that they know who God is and they know what God has promised. They understand their unworthiness before God, but also that God has promised to fix that, to reconcile them to Himself by what He and He alone has done. Habakkuk and his fellow saints, they knew what God has said, they believed what God has said, and they trusted that He said it to them. And therefore, by their faith, they would live Righteous in God's sight. That's not just saying that that their faith would guide them in the way that they acted. No, no, no. When it says the righteous will live by his faith, it's not talking about the way they live. It's talking about the fact that they have life. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your sins and transgressions. That's true of all men in every age. But those who are righteous... Through faith in Christ, at that time faith in the coming Christ, today faith in Christ who has come, they have true life, which is to say they've been restored to communion with God. And so all that they do, 
They do before the face of God. They do in recognition that, that He is the true God and that He has become their Father. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3, verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It's not what we've done. It's not what we've accomplished. Just like Abraham of old who believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what a contrast that forms. The righteous, they are at peace with God. They have true life by their faith. But over against them, the proud, the wicked, the enemies of God. Look at verse 5. This is what Babylon and its leaders are truly like. He transgresses because of, or by wine. Now, that's not saying it's wicked to drink wine. It's one of God's good gifts. But these folks abused wine. They used it to enable and to deepen their sin and their rebellion. He is a proud man in love with himself rather than God. Therefore, he doesn't stay at home. That is, he doesn't rest. He's insatiable in his search after more, more, more. In his search to build up himself and his reputation. Such wickedness is never satisfied, says the Lord. Like death itself and the grave, it always desires more. That's what the soul of the wicked is like. Always craving something that will satisfy. You know why, young people? Because we were made to be satisfied in God. And as long as we're not seeking after Him, as long as we're not serving the Lord alone, we will never be satisfied. We'll always be going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. But none of it will fill us. None of it will make us joyful. And that's Babylon. A proud and restless and driven by evil nation. But Babylon's not alone in that. This is what the ungodly are like in every age. This is, this is a reality. This is the, the, the soul that stands at the heart of our culture today. Stop and evaluate. What drives the culture in which we live today? 200 years ago and more, this land was founded. 250 plus years ago, this land was founded mainly by folks who desired to serve God, to use their gifts in a way that would honor Him. To establish a nation where their children and their children's children could worship God freely, faithfully. But that's not what we see anymore, is it? No. No, what we see is a culture that sings in every genre on the radio about my desire, my pleasure, my pride, myself, my goals, my... And that's even on the Christian radio. Or what about our politics? One side panders to covetousness. It's not fair that some people have so much wealth, so let's tax them all, let's take it from them, and let's give it to you. That's pride. That's self-seeking. But then there's the other side. We are the greatest nation ever. We have the best economy ever. We're huge. We're awesome. Everyone wants what we have. It's pride. It's self-seeking. And it's not... One side or the other, it's all of the above. What are the kids learning in most of our schools from preschool? From preschool, they're, they're assured that each person needs to be proud of himself, no matter what he accomplishes or doesn't accomplish, no matter even whether he really tries. They're taught that each person has the right to be proud of himself and even to determine what's true. That's pride. 
man-centered, self-exalting pride. And God sees. He knows. He understands what is at the heart of every man and every nation. And one day soon, He will cause those who indulge in their pride to answer for it. And that brings us to our second and largest section. Here the Lord calls upon the victims of Babylon, who would soon be many. The nations that Babylon is gathering to itself, the peoples who are heaped up as Chaldean spoils. These, he says, shall testify, standing as witnesses to condemn their tormentors. And then there are five woes, five sections of condemnation that come against Babylon. Now, each of these focus on a particular aspect of Babylon's greed, its evil, its pride. And yet each reveals something that's not unique to Babylon. The godlessness and the pride and the the man-centeredness that characterizes the godly of every age, or the godless of every age. Folks, listen, we need to hear those woes well. There's such a temptation to stop at verse 4 and to plumb the depths of the fact that the just shall live by his faith. But what tempts us is pride. Because it fills the world. It surrounds us. And we need to see the significance of that. So we can recognize it around it around us and reject it. And so that we can understand the real cost of embracing it. At the same time, these woes, they provide assurance. That those who embrace this evil and thereby afflict the people of God, they will face justice. So our second point, God anticipates the ultimate condemnation of the proud oppressors. The first woe identifies the Chaldeans as those who take what is not theirs. This is a people that steals and robs and plunders without conscience. That word in verse 6, pledges, that refers to the thing you take as security for a loan. Think of a pawn shop where you take something that that is valuable and they give you a loan that's a little less valuable. And if you don't repay the loan, then they get to keep the pledge. But but what's used here isn't the common word for pledges. It's it's an intensified word. They took excessive pledges. In other words, these were people that were willing to get rich on the backs of the poor. They were people willing to take advantage of those who were desperate. You see, that's how they dealt with the nations around them. They waited until they were desperate and then they cut a fire, fire sale kind of deal where they were getting all of the benefit and the others were just barely surviving. They were violent. They oppressed them. They plundered the nations. They shed men's blood and filled the land and the city with violence. That God says He sees. And He will cause them to answer. Because those who suffered from their greed, those who suffered from their unconscionable actions, they will stand up and they will testify and they will do more than testify. They will oppress the oppressors. They will take from those who took from them. Folks, we need to see this reality because this is the temptation for all of those who would gain for themselves coveting 
Coveting isn't a sin that maybe we think of too often or speak of very often. But that's what drove Babylon. They saw the nations around them and they thought it would sure be nice to take that nation and expand our borders a bit. And once they took that nation, they said, you know what, that next nation over has some great resources. And so they sought to take that one. That's not just statecraft. That's business in America, isn't it? That's the way we're tempted to look at every endeavor. And we see it all around us. The farmer has hundreds of acres, but, but you know, you can never have enough land. They're not making any more of it. So he strives and strives and strives and strives to get more and more and more, and he's never satisfied. Or a man's worked all his life and he's been building up a nest egg and he's got a comfortable nest egg. But you know, you never know what the economy's going to do and you can never have quite enough. So he keeps scrounging and saving and building rather than willingly and freely giving to others. They're so desperate to fill up their coffers, to gain for themselves, to get more, more, more. They're not even worried about the motives or the means. And God says you will answer for your corruption. Not only are they greedy for that which they don't have, but, but they do so through evil. Look at the sin identified in verses 9 and 10. They covet evil gain, doing whatever it takes to build their empire. They give, verse 10, shameful counsel to their house. They're not worried about whether they're telling their people to do what is right or wrong. They're just worried about getting the job done, right? They cut off many peoples. Don't underestimate the significance of that. They were going into lands where people had were living on... Think about this. We, we have our century farms around here. They were going into lands where people had lived on the same ground that their relatives had lived on for generations untold. And they were saying, this is our land now, and you're going... 300 miles away to a new land, and that's where you'll stay if you know what's good for you. And why did they do all of this? You see, it was all part of their their plan. They resettled people. They took over their lands because they sought to, to rule with an iron fist to ensure that they had complete control. Why? So that they could set their nest on high. They were seeking security. They were seeking to ensure that no one could overthrow that which they built. And... They only trusted themselves. They couldn't trust in the true God because they didn't believe in Him. And so they had to take every measure to ensure that the evil deeds that they had done, the evil means that they had used, could not be used against them. See, when you act in evil ways, it, it leaves you paranoid because you know that people can act that way. But God assures His servant, those evil deeds will condemn them. The very cities they destroyed will rise up and testify to the wanton destruction that they brought against the land without need. The third woe, they they demand what God has not given. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Rather than seek their strength through diplomacy or industry, Babylon employed violence. But Habakkuk is assured. God ordained to allow this evil for His glory. The Chaldeans, they would, they would fight and struggle to grasp what was not theirs, but ultimately it would be in vain. Everything they built, it would be burned. Everything they gathered, it would be scattered. It was all in vain. And at the end, all that would last was the glory of God who overthrew them. 
What a lesson that is for us to take hold of. Man may struggle and strive to build up a kingdom, to establish his name. But you know what? At the very end of the day, his name will be forgotten. His kingdom will be torn down. Everything and anything that does not aim at glorifying God will not last. Only that which is established to lift high the name of the true God will endure. However, Babylon would not see that. They were focused on their sin. And the fourth woe describes how relentlessly they exploited the nations. You know, it starts here with something that looks like the behavior of two companions. Sinful companions, but companions nonetheless. He gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to his bottle. Here, have a drink. Relax, enjoy. But he doesn't stop with a drink, does he? He pushes on him another drink and another drink and another drink because he has a wicked desire. He wants to see his neighbor's nakedness. Now that, that might mean that he has improper motives, but more, more than that, he desires to shame his neighbor. And this is, this is a glimpse of what Babylon as a nation, as a kingdom does. Think about how they came to Hezekiah. We heard you were sick and you've gotten well. Hey, we just wanted to come and, and wish you the best. Hey, by the way, can you give us a tour? And Hezekiah says, sure. Gives him a tour of everything. All his kingdom, all his riches, the temple and all its gold and silver. And Babylon took careful notes. We see what's underneath. We know what you have and we will take it for ourselves because now we know what you have, we want it. See, that's the character Not just of Babylon, that's the character of the ungodly. That's the character of the people who put themselves as their God. They are more than willing to exploit any weakness because their ultimate goal isn't the good of their neighbor, isn't the glory of their God. Their ultimate goal is to build themselves at any cost. But God says you are filled with shame instead of glory. They sought glory, they sought to have their name lifted on high, but it will not be. They will be shamed. God says you also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised, as unclean, as separated from God. This is a foretaste of what is to come. Those who without conscience brought the unsuspecting to an end, they will be brought to an end. The violence done to Lebanon will cover you. The plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood. That's what will come upon them. God is just. He sees and He will repay. That they wouldn't see because they served false gods. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, the teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? You think about it, it's silly, isn't it? you got a guy who makes a mold and pours metal into it, and out comes this image, and then he's dumb enough to pray to this image. Now, they knew that that image wasn't itself the God, but they believed that it was a representation of the God, and that their service to that image would please the God, but... But what kind of small, weak God would be pleased by such emptiness? God mocks them. He warns them that in trusting in their images, they're trusting in lies and teachers of lies. 
Folks, this is not an ancient phenomenon. These false gods are what motivated them, what gave them cover, if you will, to justify themselves in doing all of these evil works for which they would one day answer. And our culture, too, is filled with false gods. Oh, most of them aren't made of gold or silver. They're not made in the images of animals of various sorts. No, they're things like Mother Nature and humanism and socialism. Most of the isms, in fact. Where man worships the state or he worships mankind or he worships the creation. Many of our false gods are far more fuzzy, but more powerful for all of that. Pride and the exercise of power, popularity among men, and riches that allow one to rise in the eyes of men. These are false gods that are no different in essence from the false gods of old Babylon. And God assures us as He assured Habakkuk. Those gods are lies and they are teachers of lies. And they will lead you into destruction eternal. Understand, my friends, these these five woes are a double-edged sword. For those who oppose God and His ways, for those who embrace that mantra of whatever works, me and mine first, I want my name to last. I want to make a difference. I want people to remember me. For those who worship that God of self, their sins will come back to haunt them because they're not serving the true God. Through Paul, the Lord said in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God cannot fail to punish those who worship man, who worship self, who put themselves above all else. So it's a warning to us. But it's also... An assurance for those who love God, for those who trust in Him and who suffer at the hand of evil, like Habakkuk would, like those of Israel who trusted in the Lord, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. This is a message that God not only sees, but He will hold to account those who who so harm them. They won't get away with it. God will not smile. He won't turn a blind eye. Justice will fall upon them. And we, on the other hand, we will know His glory and His love and His life if we look patiently to Him. And that leads us to our final point. In verse 20, God encourages the patient submission of His righteous servants. One verse. But in that verse... In that verse is a message of life. In that verse is a message of comfort that abides. First notice in the first half of this verse what we're taught about God. We're taught that He is holy. He is a being who is entirely righteous and infinitely pure. Not only does He lack evil, He cannot stand to be in the presence of evil. And this holy God is in His temple. That means He's not 
like the false gods of Babylon and all the other nations around that were limited to their particular sphere of influence, who could be easily manipulated by particular offerings and gifts, multiple gods that each had particular strengths but also weaknesses. No, He is the holy God who is in His temple in heaven where He reigns over all things, where He calls the shots for every nation, where nothing escapes His notice. And He is therefore greater than everything that troubles us here below, sovereign over all who do evil in this world, and the judge to whom everyone must answer. But more than that, this Holy One who is in His temple, He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. That name stands at the very core of our comfort. The name is a Hebrew verb that reflects His eternality. It means He is. This is the God who is and who always has been. Before time itself came into being, Yahweh, He is. That name reflects His eternality, but also His faithfulness. This is the God of the covenant. This is the God who promised to bless men and to bless the nations through His people. This name pronounces His love. He is the one who has promised to be our God and to make us to be His people. This is the God in whom the righteous trust. If they would live, if they would truly live, they have faith in Him, in His promises, in His ability, in His grace. This is the God whom we trust because of Jesus, His Son. All that God promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all that He declared to Moses and the promises that made David rejoice... All His mercy, His blessing, His life proclaimed through the the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill all of it perfectly. The Lord is in His holy temple where we who trust in Jesus seek Him. Where we who have faith know that He is ruling all things for our good with Jesus at His right hand. That's comfort. But verse 20 tells us a bit more, doesn't it? It not only tells us that we serve the true God who is sovereign over all things and who loves us, but it also shows us what He demands of us. Look at the second half of verse 20. Keep silence. This is the calling that comes of encountering our holy God. We must honor God by declining to speak until spoken to. We must honor God by acknowledging that He, the sovereign King, is the one who must take Initiative. He comes to us, gives us His gospel, transforms our hearts, fills us with His Holy Spirit, and motivates us to respond with faith and love and works of gratitude. We keep silence before Him, before Him. Though God is in heaven, we are before Him. Because this God is omnipresent through His Holy Spirit. There is nowhere that God is not. And therefore we must live as those who are seen by God always and in every place. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. You see, this is who owes God their worship. Not just those of old Israel. Not merely those of the church. All men without exception owe Him their worship and their praise. After all, He made us. He sustains us. And He is the only one who can give us life. This final phrase of our text shows us that we owe God honor absolute. And that includes the honor of trusting Him. My friends, there is much in this world that we cannot understand. Why do the wicked prosper? 
Why do evil men thrive as they do their evil deeds? Why does God seem to turn a blind eye to the slaughter of preborn children or the persecution of the church or the suffering of the saints? Why? But God doesn't answer to us, does He? However, this we know. He sees precisely what men are and what they do, acknowledging the insatiable pride of nations like wicked Babylon. He also judges those who indulge in their wickedness, anticipating the ultimate condemnation of the proud oppressors. And His people He will preserve, bless, and keep everlastingly. Therefore, let us patiently wait in faith with our eyes upon Him. For the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Soon, very soon, Christ will return. Justice will be done. And on that day, the saints will celebrate the faithfulness and the justice of our God. Until then, brothers and sisters, let us patiently submit to this God who is entirely sovereign and entirely good. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are precisely the one whom we need. Apart from You, this world does not make sense to us. But in You, in You we stand secure. Give us the faith to stand before You without fear, without doubt, without worry, without second guessing. And help us to encourage and build up one another, Lord. As we remember Your promise to give mercy to those who trust in You and justice to those who rebel. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.